1: Hi, I'm Stephanie Everett.
2: And I'm Zach Glazer. And this is episode 355 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. In today's episode, I'm talking with Alan Rodriguez about his new alternative business structure in Arizona, Singular Law. He and his partner are some of the first to get licensed under the new rules.
1: Today's podcast is brought to you by Expander, Rankings.io, and Litera. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. So stay tuned because we're going to tell you more about them later on. It's almost Thanksgiving, and so I was curious. What are you thankful for these days?
2: A lot of things. <laughs> <Yeah>. um...
1: <laughs> Good. <laughs> I should have been more specific as our as our resident legal tech advisor. Anything in the tech world that that's got you excited?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Let's hone in on it. So I I don't know exactly how tech related this necessarily is, but I think it is because it's kind of helped by technology, but. The other day, the New York State Bar Association put out an article, some suggestions on things that we can do to basically increase the health and well-being of practicing lawyers. And one of those things was limiting the amount of hours, that, the amount of billable hours that attorneys work. And honestly, I'm, I'm thankful we're just having that conversation.
1: Yeah, that's a first. And like normally we're talking about how many hours we can possibly bill and bragging. I mean, I still remember the most I've ever billed in a month. So it's interesting to think about, okay, let's actually flip the script on that and what if we put a cap on people and said you couldn't bill more than this much time or or maybe handle this many cases if you're doing, you know, flat fee work. I think mm-hmm. that's a conversation worth having.
2: Well, and sometimes with things like this, people actually find that they're more productive a healthier lawyer, a healthier worker generally is a a more productive worker. I know that's the case for me.
1: Yeah. And, you know, what comes to my mind, which is maybe a slight variation on this is I think a lot of times, like the lawyers that we work with, they know they need to hire and they know they need help, but it comes too late. Like they don't mm-hmm. realize earlier in the process when they need help, and so it's almost like they wait until the point where they're just so overwhelmed and so drowning in work that they are like, okay, I guess I need to hire someone. And at that point, it's really hard because now they're so they're they're running behind. They're on this treadmill of of work trying to keep up and keep up with the deadlines. And we're sitting there saying, well, you need to make time now to create a hiring process and interview and, and find the right person. And then guess what? When they come on, they're going to need to be onboarded and trained. And, and that is just too much. And it breaks people, quite frankly. They're like, how I need this help. How am I supposed to do it? So I think part of the answer is that you have to start thinking about that capacity issue much earlier. And maybe what you're talking about, too, this idea of limiting cases and limiting hours forces us to start thinking about what is your capacity? You know, where does that conversation need to happen?
2: Mm-hmm. And that's beyond just, you know, kind of mental health or or personal health. It is something that no matter what the number is, recognizing A, that there is a number. But for me, that number is probably smaller than you think it is. You know, that's less than you really think it is. It's certainly the productive hours in the day.
1: Yeah, I think I was just sharing with you, there's a book out that talks about the fact that most workers, the average worker, 40% of their week is unplanned work. And what they mean by that is it could be client emergencies or just those fires that come up, but it could be Mm -hmm. that an activity took you longer than you thought it was going to take. So instead of taking two hours to write the brief, you took six. Well, now you had four hours of unplanned work. And I Mm -hmm. think we like to kind of fool ourselves sometimes into thinking that that's not our reality, That or we can manage it, or we can just not put out fires. But instead, this whole concept is like, let's actually acknowledge, and if you think about that number, 40%, that's huge. Mm-hmm. That means you really only have capacity for
2: 60%. <laughs> right. And, you know, anecdotally, I can say that's the that tracks with my experience. Even this week, Paige, our operations manager, challenged us to put hours to what we were doing this week. And on Monday, I listed out the things that I wanted to do, put the hours to it, and the realistic hours I I thought, and I look at my calendar and I go, "Well, what am I going to do with the rest of the week?" And fast forward to today, <laughs> right? And, and and I am hopefully at least on track, if not slightly behind because that's just what happens. And it's not it's not even because I gave bad numbers to the amount of time these things are going to take, but other things came up. And I'd I'd say without doing the numbers, you know, 60% capacity is probably a pretty good guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, I did the same thing with that experiment this week, by the way. And so we're recording this on a Wednesday. And so we had to report the hour estimates on Monday. (laughs) And then on Wednesday, we have to do this midweek check-in. And I was looking at my list and I was like, oh, wow, I have not done very well. (laughs) So I challenge everybody, if you're listening, try that exercise with your team too, because it is super Mm -hmm. eye-opening. But I think, you know, part of the story here is to start thinking about your capacity at 60%. So I think, you know, you and I were saying that means when you hit 50%, you need to start thinking, you need to start planning. Okay, what am Mm -hmm. I going to do? Am I going to hire someone? Am I going to delegate something differently? Am I going to outsource something or automate something like that's the trigger when something needs to change. And I can t- guarantee you that the lawyers that I mostly work with, they don't start to have that conversation until they're at 80 or 90%. And it's I just that, yeah, it's too late. So right. don't make that mistake. We need to start having this conversation way earlier. And it's it's really got me thinking about like, I'm going to be connecting with all the lawyers I work with in the next week and sharing this because it's a big aha moment, I think for a lot of people.
2: Right. And I think we have to keep that in mind with the people that we are managing as well. One of my thoughts when I looked at my calendar and I had put all those hours in, I I thought, what is is somebody else that's looking at my calendar going to think? What are they going to think I'm doing all week? And we need to allow for time for that because we're not the only ones who wind up having things go on fire or who wind up having people come into our office and having to field things that are outside of our control
1: yeah, well, Zach, I'm thankful that you brought this topic today because I think it's an important one and one we need to be having a lot. so i'm glad I'm glad we tackled it and at least got the conversation going. And um now I'm excited to hear your conversation with Alan.
2: Oh, me too. <laughs> hey, y'all. I'm Zach Glazer, and welcome back to the Lawyers Podcast. Today, we're talking with Alan Rodriguez of Singular Law Group, an ABS law firm approved to operate in Arizona. Alan, thanks for joining me today.
3: Uh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the discussion.
2: Yeah. So so last week in episode 354, I interviewed Lori Gonzalez about the changing regulations and their potential impact. And today I'd actually kind of like to get into a real world example. And that's one of the reasons we've got you here. So for background, Alan, you're the business and operations side of Singular Law Firm, right?
3: Yeah, that's right. I my My official title at the firm is President.
2: Okay. Okay. And so you're not a lawyer, but you've been innovating in the legal field for quite some time with your company one 400. And so you've, you've been doing legal innovations and and following in this legal tech space. And so you're, you're, you're knowledgeable about what's going on in all of this area.
3: Yeah. So I, I, you know, you're right. I'm not a lawyer. I've been kind of working in the legal industry for 21 years. I, I think, uh, I'm more focused on the business and, um, legal services products, right? So at 1-400, yeah. you know, we've been working with um, some of the most innovative names in the legal industry, you know, both on the law firm and legal tech side, um, mm-hmm. and having a great time kind of coming up with new uh, business models and new ways to distribute legal services. But my career um, actually started about 21 years ago. I, I used to be the operations administrator for the LA County Bar Lawyer Referral Service. And so there, you know, we had a large network of attorneys, we can split fees. And that's where I became aware of like, you know, this kind of access to justice gap, mm-hmm. which I think we're going to talk about here in a second, but also became very aware of like how just kind of operations and business models, when used in the right way, could service more people, create sustainable, profitable law firms, mm-hmm. and then solve this problem. From, from the LA bar, just by way of background, from there, I was recruited into LegalZoom and so at LegalZoom.com, from 2008 to 2012, I was the director of attorney services. And at mm-hmm. that time, they were still a do-it-yourself uh, provider of services. And and you know my role there was to help them move into a more comprehensive solution that incorporated attorneys. So we threw a lot of spaghetti on the wall. We started kind of working with attorneys to kind of figure out like what works. And um, we found a, a really great product mix. Like Mm -hmm. it was part subscription based, part commoditized legal services, use technology, automation to really deliver legal services in a different way. And it was wildly successful. And, And now we know, you know, LegalZoom is a publicly traded organization with a $7 billion valuation. And then that's how I ended up at 1-400. And now the evolution is finally singular law, right? Like, let's go right. full circle and kind of come back to where, you know, where the legal industry is served at its core at a law firm.
2: Right, right. Well, and so you've been in this kind of thinking about legal services and delivering legal services in a different way for quite a while then.
3: Yeah, 100%. I mean, I mean like, you know, again, way back in the in the days when I was at the LA bar, I remember sitting on this committee and you'd have a, a bunch of uh, lawyers, very successful lawyers, were all eating great food, drinking some wine, and somebody slams their fist on the table and says, you know, damn it, we need to do more to create better access to justice. But unfortunately, I'm way too busy and making too much money to kind of do it, right? <laughs> and, you know, like I, the, the, the business side of me and entrepreneur side of me, it was like, Hey, there's an interesting problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because you know, entrepreneurship—like, we're, we're all about solving problems. Right. There's an interesting problem, and the mix was right. It's like, well, there's an entire industry choosing to ignore the, you know, the solving of this problem, and there's like 80 million Americans that suffer from this problem, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, for me, that was the beginning of a journey that turned into, you know, both my personal and professional goal mm-hmm. was to contribute to the solution. Right. And quite honestly, the the business side of me is like, make some money doing it. Like where other people see like, Hey, this is a pro bono problem, this legal aid problem, whatever Mm -hmm. I see, like, man, if I could just get five bucks out of each one of those 80 million Americans, like that's a lucrative opportunity.
2: Right. But you have to, you have to be thinking a little bit differently in order to do that. You have to think a little bit differently than our standard Law firm, one person to one client kind of set up in order to do that.
3: 100%. And you nailed one big part of the problem, right? Like, I think what makes law so expensive and inefficient is because of this one-to-one relationship. Like there's, there's many reasons and we, and we can go Mm -hmm. on for hours, outline all the reasons, but (laughs) but one reason is the one-to-one relationship that lawyers have. Right. So like, Mm -hmm. because it's a one-to-one relationship with their clients and this is mandated, like through the rules of professional conduct and, and like, quite honestly, just because of tradition, right? Like that required like there's only so many hours in a week. And if you wanna earn more, and if you wanna scale that model, you have to increase your costs, bring in more bodies to have more one-to-one relationships with people. But that's where I think we have to think differently. We have to break from that traditional model, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we have to do is kind of figure out one-to-many relationships, right? Right. And how can we use technology to facilitate one-to-many relationships? And so some of the ways that I think law firms can do this and and certainly some of the ways that singular law intends to do this is by creating subscription-based services, right? Like, So there's kind of shared access or shared ownership uh, Mm -hmm. of a law firm, right? Because we're distributing the cost of of access to a law firm across thousands of people potentially. right? You know, I, I like to describe this, and this is not my term, but it's like a collaborative consumption model, right? Like, so like, I'll give you the example of Netflix, right? So mm-hmm. back in the day, we we had the DVD library and some of us were really into movies and we had a large DVD library. We spent a lot of money on owning that. Then Netflix comes around and collaboratively, all of the people with like-minded interests, we now collaboratively consume the world's largest DVD library, essentially, right? Right. And and it was only possible through technology and the business model change. Mm-hmm. And I think if we're going to solve this access to justice problem, it's the same thing. We need technology and we need business model change in law firms, and that's what we hope to exemplify at Singular Law Group.
2: Yeah. so, so let's talk uh, specifically about Singular Law Group. What is it you guys are doing that is kind of I guess, special, what's different here?
3: So we're we're really trying to build a law firm that isn't just kind of based on like precedent, right? Like this is the way it's always been done. You know, we want to think right. about it differently. And so we want to build it from the ground up from the client perspective, right? Like what does the client want at the end of the day, right? Like, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of legal services, well, one, there's just a general access problem. And part of that access is like, cost of legal services. So what we're hoping to do is use technology and alternative business models to um, lower that barrier of entry for mm-hmm. people from costs, right? Like when you think about it, it's on average, let, let's call it 250 an hour. It depends on the state, but let's call it 250 an hour on average, right, for an attorney bill. Mm-hmm. Well, for a family of four, you know, with a modest like grocery budget, it's 180 bucks to fill the grocery basket a week. So, like, we're talking like a basket of groceries versus like, you know, less than one hour, like 45 minutes of attorney time, essentially, right? So, like, we want to lower that barrier of entry by using subscription models, by using limited scope services, so Mm -hmm. people have at least some access to justice as a getting start point, and then they can buy a la carte, right? You can buy ongoing coaching, legal Mm -hmm. advice, things of that nature, Also, rather than pass on, you know, bills that have historically required human labor, right, like say a paralegal filling out like a template form, we're like, hey, that's what software is for. Mm -hmm. Like, let's just automate this agreement or whatever this thing is, run it by a quality check by, you know, qualified attorney, Mm -hmm. and then deliver that and pass the savings on to that consumer and move more volume. Right. So um, that's one thing. The other thing, too, like access to justice isn't just about money. It's about meeting the client where they are, geographically mm-hmm. speaking. So at launch, we're statewide for a lot of the services that we offer because we're we're going to meet people on their cell phones, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, we're using, again, technology. The website for us is a platform for delivering legal services, not just a place to make us the hero of the story, right?
2: Right, right. I saw that. I Just real quickly, I was looking at your website and that is one of the things that strikes me when I first went there was how you know, user centric it is, how easy it is to kind of get around, how easy it is to get through. There are a lot of very good law firm websites out there, obviously, but this one is blatantly trying to say, hey, come use this as a tool.
3: Yeah, and, and quite honestly, that that was like v1. That was like our our placeholder on the internet. Like, hey, we exist now, come take a look. Mm-hmm. Really, we intend for our website to be a commerce experience, right? Mm-hmm. Much in the same way that you'd see other dot coms, right? Like, you know, like the legal zooms, the rocket lawyers, those organizations of the world. So mm-hmm. um, we are already working on v2. We don't want to be the hero of the story. We want our clients to be the hero of the story, right?
2: Right, right. so
3: like what we want is just to make law accessible to them. So here's another point about that. Like for us, accessibility is also like, you know, kind of acknowledging ADA. So our our website's Mm -hmm. ADA compliant, right? Like there's 12 and a half million Americans with visual disabilities. And if you can't read the law, you have no access to the law. Mm -hmm. And why would I want to turn off those potential customers? Right. You know uh, that sort of thing. So that's also important to us. And then, you know, even in how we intend to deliver legal services, for example, we were just talking to the team and I about like prenuptial agreements as Mm -hmm. an example, right. Traditionally a prenuptial agreement might say, you know, like use the pronouns him and her, not exactly like bride and groom, for example. Right. Right. Like, but you know, like How do we address that? Like in the, they, them, you know, kind of uh, world, right. Or the him, him kind of world, right. Mm -hmm. Like, so, you know, for us, like we, we think about those things too. So that way, even like the legal product that the attorneys at singular law will output is also inclusive.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, it's difficult. I think with a law firm setup, when you just have lawyers owning this firm, that human is an asset. They are a billable hour and taking that human and moving them to designing these documents or designing this site, or even, you know, broadly designing the experience is almost a waste of, well, it can easily be considered a waste of a billable hour. And so when you have somebody in this company like yourself, who is not necessarily supposed to be, and the company is not set up to where it's, you know, one-to-one billable hour. You can think about those design aspects. You can you can say, okay, well, we, we want to go from V1 to V2, or, or we want to make sure that this is accessible by everybody. And that person who is doing that has skin in the game, has a stake in this company, and is able to to say, we want it to do really well. And in order to do really well, we need to serve our clients very well.
3: Yeah, you, you nailed it, Zach. I mean, I, I think that's what at the end of the day we're hoping to accomplish through these, I call them partnerships, but right, the fusion of mm-hmm. like non law professionals that have these skills and these insights and this experience with working with customers and then these lawyers. Like at Singular Law, like I know my role and I stay in my lane, right? Like I have no commentary on the actual legal work product that gets delivered to the client. I'm not qualified, right? Like I've got 21 years in the industry, but I'm not a lawyer. I'm not trained, Mm -hmm. right? So my role is to work with the lawyers that I believe can deliver the highest quality output, right? Mm -hmm. You know, under the models that we're trying to accomplish. But my my role at the end of the day is I bring this other set of skills that they don't have and they stay in their their lane. I'm the user experience person, right? Mm -hmm. I'm the person that's like, helping to contribute to make sure that I'm always advocating for our clients experience, Mm -hmm. the assumption here, and this is Mary Jutton, my business partner, she's the compliance lawyer. Mm -hmm. She's trained and qualified to monitor the legal output, right? The quality of the legal, the legal, legal advice and and that sort of thing. That's what she's doing. She'll stay in her lane. I'll stay in mine together. Right? Like when we have these discussions, Mm -hmm. like, we each have ultimate like decision-making authority on disputes about like, like if it's law-related right. she, that's her call at the end of the day. If it's user experience, that's my call at the end of the day, right? Right. Like, right? But together, I mean, this is what makes for a better experience for the client. And as all professional services firms, whether they're law firms, accounting firms, architectural firms, we only exist because of our clients. Mm-hmm. Our clients shouldn't feel lucky that we're talking to them right? They shouldn't feel lucky because they've experienced some compelling event that drove them to our office. And now their backs up against the wall and we take it back. No, like we exist because they have chosen to give us an opportunity to earn their business. If you do that, that's all the growth you really need, right? Right.
2: right. Well, on, on that note, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we will be right back to continue this discussion. Support for today's episode comes from Text Expander. Minimize effort, maximize productivity with Text Expander. Text Expander helps you work faster and smarter so you can focus your time on your most important work. Drive faster results in three steps. One, create. Make snippets of text for support responses, sales outreach, or even common emails to save them in Text Expander. Two, trigger. Just type a few characters and watch the snippet automatically expand your text. You can add fill in the blank or more complex functionality to customize your message. 3. Share. Share snippets across your organization. Your team can customize and insert the text in any app on Mac, Windows, Chrome, or iOS with a few keystrokes. Are you a startup looking to scale? Text Expander is here to help you on your journey. Check out Text Expander for Startups, a program that's specifically designed to help startup teams communicate more consistently, accurately, and efficiently. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit TextExpander.com forward slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. Support for today's episode comes from Rankings.io, helping hyper-competitive personal injury attorneys dominate first-page rankings through search engine optimization to become better recognized as the leading law firm in your metro. Rankings is solely focused on SEO for personal injury law firms. You'll work with an entire team of SEO specialists dedicated to helping clients dominate search results with unparalleled industry expertise. Rankings focuses on proof, not promises, by delivering results and never leaving their clients in the dark. You will receive monthly reports that give a full snapshot of where you stand as you watch your firm climb to the first page of Google and generate high-value leads. Most importantly, you'll be one of an elite few. Rankings' unrelenting conviction to be the best drives them to do everything to ensure the personal injury law firms working with them are dominating the search results. To see if you're a fit, visit Rankings.io forward slash lawyerist to get started. Today's podcast is brought to you by LaTerra. Delivering high quality work on time and on budget is what matters most to your clients. Letera helps law firms maximize client retention rates, increase profit margins, and enhance lawyer happiness. In short, they simplify complex workflows by connecting legal teams to the data they need every day. The result? End user happiness. Most of the world's largest law firms, boutique firms, and corporate legal departments trust Latera to help their legal teams manage all of their documents, deals, cases, and data. Are you ready to join them? Latera is excited to hear about the challenges facing your organization, show you their software in action, or simply discuss whatever else might be top of mind. Get a demo with their document experts today by visiting latera.com forward slash lawyerist. And welcome back. Again, here with Alan Rodriguez of Singular Law Group, talking about their alternative business law firm and how they're addressing client needs in a different, albeit better, way in order to try to make sure that we're we're helping more clients. Is I mean, is that a decent way of saying that, Alan?
3: Yeah, yeah, I
2: would say it that way. I I would say the other objective though is to
3: make sure that we create a sustainable business model for mm-hmm. law firms, right? Because like at the end of the day, I'm all about more pro bono, legal aid, that sort of thing. But that alone isn't also solving the problem. And right. as you know, as again, is the entrepreneur or the capitalist in here, right? Like if people aren't gonna be able to make money at it, then mm-hmm. they're not gonna do it. Right. If we can't earn money and do good in the world, it's gonna be much harder to accomplish. Right. You know, that's where nonprofits try to fill in the gap, and that's clearly not working here in the states, you know, when it comes to legal aid. So, Right. So the other part of it is like we do need to create a sustainable, profitable business model for this to kind of really get the traction we hope.
2: When I was um helping the the SBA in Nashville when I was working with them, one of the people I worked with would say do well by doing good. Yeah. You want to make money, of course, we all have to eat, you know, but do good do good in the sense of do good things and also do a good job as well for your clients and so yeah. i think that's exactly what you're hitting there is if we leave it to legal aid which i think you know the legal aid organizations in this this country are are doing a wonderful job and are kind of in a sense outgunned because we yeah. have a, a big yeah. big area to help and then we can't leave it to just pro bono because again if how do we incentivize that how do we incentivize people? And, and it's too large of a problem, this access to justice gap, and it's too multifaceted. I think you've hit on a couple of the facets of it is we've got an access to justice problem with location. We've got an access to justice problem with from an ADA perspective. We've got an access to justice problem from a, a monetary perspective, from yep. an education perspective, from all yep. of these different ways, and we're never going to be able to to address all of them with a one size fits all solution. And we're certainly not gonna be able to pro bono our way out of any of that, because it's gonna need need some innovation. And so kind of along those lines with your law firm, what was the process in Arizona of kind of getting this going?
3: So the process is easier now that they've, so they've innovated, they've like kind of figured out what the frictions are (laughs) and then they've improved the process. When we applied, I think we applied in like February, late February, it rolled Mm -hmm. out in January, right? This year Mm -hmm. we applied in late February. It was basically download this PDF. And to be honest, like some of the questions were inconsistent. There was like this chicken, like, for example, there was this chicken and egg problem where like tell us your partnership, what that looks like. But then until we're approved, I actually can't be a partner. Right. Like, so so what what we did, you know, to kind of address that is we fo- we created an operating agreement mm-hmm. and we demonstrated what our partnership will look like once we are approved, then we'll sign the operating agreement and we'll show all that sort of thing. So that was like one thing. Um, mm-hmm. and that part still exists. So, if you're partnering with someone who's not an attorney, I, by the way, I hate the, the term non, non-attorney, non right? So I, like, I do too. I agree. Let's call, yes. let's call them pals, professionals who aren't lawyers, right? <laughs> like, <or something, laughs> right? I, you know, pals. So if you're partnering with a pal, right? And by the way, that's Mary Jutton's term uh, over at CheckLine. Like, so if you're partnering with a pal, like, yeah, you have to take that into consideration. Um, you're going to need, you know, like you want to show the committee, here's what our partnership is going to look like. As soon as you approve, we're going to execute this operating agreement. That's that, right? So mm-hmm. that was one thing. The other thing, there's like a fee, right? So if you're a for-profit, you know, applying to to be an ABS law firm, it's like six thousand bucks. It's big enough to help the committee find the resources that they need to continue to do this work. Mm -hmm. I don't think it, i personally, I don't think it's big enough to be a significant hurdle for, for wanting to pursue, you know, like there's plenty of other businesses that cost more to get started right than 6,000 bucks. So, right. Could it be lower? Yeah. If you're, if you're forming a nonprofit or if you can demonstrate some financial need, then like, I think there's a reduction in the fee, Mm -hmm. pretty substantial reduction in the fee. But I mean, 6,000 bucks is what you'd expect to pay if if you're gonna be a for-profit organization.
2: Well, I I think that goes along with one of the arguments that Lori was making last week of we need to entice, or we need to have monetary investment and large monetary investment in these areas in order to get the innovation that that we need. And we're talking more money than what just law firms have. And so $6,000 from that perspective, is really no bar to entry and and so hopefully it's not going to be a bar to entry for for a lot of these cuz that's what we don't want is to to keep people out that could be doing good things but yeah, yeah i i just don't think that that amount is going against what we're kind of talking about of like why we're doing this
3: Yeah. And for me, quite honestly, like the 6,000 bucks was like just making sure that I'm committed to doing this really. Right. Like I'm not just kind of doing this for like the LinkedIn posts, right. That shows like, Hey, I'm now president singular law. Like, no, we're, we're seriously all in too. So I personally was fine for it. I I know it creates some friction for some people, but, Mm -hmm. but anyway, that was part of the process. The other thing is like, they do have this mission to make sure that this is used to help fill this access to justice gap. So they do ask for your statement. Like, how do you intend to accomplish that? So a lot of the things that, you know, I disclosed at the the beginning of this podcast were things that we just wrote down in our application process, right? Mm -hmm. Like our experience, like they want to know your backgrounds. They want to know, uh, they do a due diligence so that they'll do a background investigation, uh, much like a a lawyer would would go through when they're newly licensed, right? You know, the, the moral kind of, uh, background in investigation that they do. They uh, also made sure that I acknowledged and affirmed that I would also be held to the RPC, right? The same standard okay. As, okay. as lawyers are, you know, in terms of like, now mm-hmm. that said, like, I also, I, I don't have access to attorney client privilege that that still has to exist within singular law. So mm-hmm. what, what's interesting about that, like, you know they make this clear in the application process and I have to affirm that that exists. So you do have to then answer, well, how are you going to address this if you're approved? Right. And right. so, you know, in our case, it was pretty straightforward. Well, we just create silos, right? Mm-hmm. Like, let's say there was a customer service issue that I needed to investigate for some reason then there, there are processes for that already. Like we can ask the, the customer if they want me to investigate deeper, would you be open to waiving privilege? Like the mm-hmm. customer, the client can tell whoever they want anything about their case. It's the attorney can't right. respond, right? Like, you know, right. that's, where, right. that's where it's inside. So like, If we ask the customer and they agree to let the the attorney tell their side of the story, then we can do a deeper investigation. So we just make sure that like we have those systems and processes in place Mm -hmm. and that we agree to like, you know, always kind of uh, act accordingly and not deviate from these rules. So that went into the application. And then the final thing I'll I'll just say on that, what was interesting in in our case is that they interviewed Mary Jutton, my my business partner, Mm -hmm. and they did not talk to me at all. And by the way, the, the, the staff at the Arizona uh, Courts, the committee, they were super helpful in helping us navigate the application. So mm-hmm. I can't say enough good things. They were very responsive. They know yeah. who's new. they wanted to work. So they were super helpful. But they interviewed Mary as the lawyer and they were like, are you sure Alan can't influence like your decisions? Right. Are you sure Alan's not this creepy business guy or whatever? I don't know that they were saying <laughs> that. Right? I'm, I'm just kind of making fun. But Mary and I joked, I was like, clearly they've never met you, Mary, like before this because like (laughs) nobody is influencing Mary, like, you know, decision, whatever. But like, I thought it was interesting in that, like, even though they're all in and kind of moving this forward, they still somehow feel like a business person can corrupt an attorney somehow, right?
2: Right. And, you know, that's kind of contrary to a lot of the ethical rules we have. A lot of the ethical rules exist because- we think that lawyers put in a room with somebody are going to be able to convince that person of something, not be convinced. And so we, we have to, in our advertisements, we can't directly, you know, solicit business because if we get in a room with somebody and we start soliciting business from them, we're definitely going to convince them. Well, that's completely contrary to this idea that our business partners will definitely corrupt us because we're 100% Hundred percent.
3: corruptible. Yeah. I mean that—that's the thing, right? Like you know, up until recently, lawyers have not been able to split fees and all that mm-hmm. for for these this concern that like a business person will corrupt you. But like, quite honestly, running and capping rules. And this non-solicitation only exists because lawyers have done that to themselves, right? Like they had done that. Right. And so like the bar had to come in and say, Whoa, you can't be doing that. You can't just hire somebody to go and like chase ambulances for you. Like it literally happened to me. I was involved in a house fire one time and this guy came with CB radio, like he pulled up, the house is still like smoking. And he's like, Hey, I've got this attorney. I do like, Come on, I was working at the LA bar already. I I know how that all works, mm-hmm. and I was just like, this already happens, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, a business person like isn't going to come in and somehow like make more of this happen or something like
2: that. Right, right. Well, I I think one of the the questions people do have when you get past the, you know, are, are there appropriately balanced ethical obligations? Is the attorney not being corrupted? is the quality of the legal services. We, as attorneys, want to feel like every attorney is going to get 100% on the test yeah. every time. We're going to deliver the perfect solution to that client every single time. And we want to make sure that if somebody's doing it quickly, that they're still doing it at our high quality standards.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I I mean, like, you know, I, I, I wish I had like a really great answer for that i know Lori speaks on it and she's very frank in her responses about this but like you know to some degree this is going to be a terrible example i know but i'm going to say it anyway like if somebody came up to me and said hey alan i'll pay you a thousand dollars if you uh try heroin for the first time or mm-hmm. something like that like no man i'm just not gonna do that because it's or like i'll pay you a thousand dollars if you just lie to this person for me like right I'm just not going to do that. That's, that's me. And, and I don't see why a business relationship, you know, with, with an attorney what like at the end of the day, the attorney has full control mm-hmm. over the decisions that they make. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're all influenced by money every day. All of us are right. Like, you know, we all got bills to pay. We've all yep. got, but every day, non-lawyer people make good moral decisions to not allow, you know, corruption into their life and that sort of thing. So I I think this is an individual question. I think like if somebody's going to be unduly influenced, it's happening for that individual, Mm -hmm. not like in general, but we've painted this broad brush kind of stroke that like all attorneys are susceptible to this. And, and like, I disagree with that.
2: Right. Right.
3: But those are some of the ethical, you know, questions that come up with, uh, these sorts of things.
2: And I think brushing them to the side is not the way to go, but you know, I I think I said this with Lori last week, come to me with solutions, not problems. You know? Yeah. Ethical concerns are always a problem when you get into these sorts of relationships where you have fiduciary relationships, where you have a, a relationship where one party has more knowledge than the other. And the client is relying on the lawyer or the law firm to take care of them in a way or to, to look out for what's best for them. So you're always going to have these, these ethical pulls and we will come up with solutions for this. If there is a problem, you know, we, we always have these things there and, and we, we deal with them already.
3: Yeah. And, and in the Arizona case, I mean, they, I think they've got a great model. They have a compliance lawyer. Mm-hmm. And so Mary Judden, even though she's like, you know, founder of Tracklight, she's more legal tech founder uh, than lawyer. Like this role of hers is a very serious one and she takes. Mm-hmm. She's the traffic cop. We start, we go into brainstorming sessions. Like, Hey, we can automate this, that, and the other. And like, she's always like, well, hold on. How does this align with the rules of professional conduct? Right. Like right. we, we right. all like, she's that gut check all the time. So she's kind of like, that that stopgap to make sure that even in our desire to want to innovate and be creative, we never neglect, you know, at the end of the day, the rules of professional conduct and what is ethically appropriate for a a given uh, situation as it relates to the client at the Mm -hmm. end of the day. And and at the end of the day, the Arizona um, Supreme Court, they want to make sure that we're protecting the clients, right? You know, that sort of thing. So, so I do think there's a good system in place for monitoring that. And, you know, Mary even as business partner at at singular law, she has a lot to lose. She can lose her law license if she Mm -hmm. doesn't like take her role seriously. Right. Right. And she doesn't want to do that. I don't want her to lose it either. So like, you know, (laughs) right yeah so so there's that that's some of the concerns i guess the other concern is lowering the quality of legal services mm-hmm. again like i think some of these concerns are like we don't want efficiency to negate the quality of legal services and and when you think about this from the business side of it right we want delightful clients, right? Mm-hmm. Like clients who have who had a delightful experience interacting with us and great results. Right. At the end of the day, that's going to be the fastest driver of subsequent business for us. And if we just focused on efficiency alone and delivered less delightful experiences for them and lower quality results, like that's, The worst business model. Right. Like that is that is not the way to grow a business. Right. And so to think that somehow a business person is only focused on efficiency, that's not so. To run a successful business in any sector, you have to love your customers. You have Mm -hmm. to love your clients.
2: Right, right. Well, okay. So we've gotten into kind of what you guys are doing and a little bit of the addressing some of the concerns that people might have and have been talking about, but really how's your experience so far? How's it going with what you guys are doing? Are you, are you moving toward what you've set out to do?
3: Yeah, slowly. So as it turns out, right, like working as a business person in the legal industry, working as a consultant in the legal industry moves a lot faster than actually running your own law firm. So kudos to like, I've learned something, right? So 21 years on the outside of law, now being on the direct inside, I've learned how slow the wheels of justice turn, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so Mm -hmm. it's been a little bit of a slow start for us, but we're really kind of focused on building the systems that allow us to accomplish our long-term goal. So far, we've had some, we've been able to leverage the relationships I've uh, earned here at 1400 and the relationships Mary brings. So we have some legal tech partners Mm -hmm. that are helping us generate some business, you know, basically, you know, putting us in contact with, folks who who need some legal services. And so we're having some some really great conversations with people to figure out what their needs are, how they want them delivered, that sort of thing. So we're still kind of in the R&D stage, I, I guess. We've set up some automated systems for intake. We're in the process of, of training some folks and, and kind of automating some functions, but it's been a lot harder than I thought, to be honest. But, you know, again, The other exciting part is like being on the outside 1-400, like let's say as an example was both kind of advisor and then maybe like um, logistics for law, right? Like one Mm -hmm. way to think about it now through our relationship with singular law, we have the distribution channel. So to some Mm -hmm. degree, we're trying to create the Amazon model. There's the acquisition, right? And then there's like the logistics and then there's the distribution, you know, Mm -hmm. and that allows us to go full vertical. So, so yeah, it's been slow and it's been hard. So kudos to all those attorneys that bust their butts every day, like trying to make this happen, but yeah,
2: we're making progress. Well, that's good to hear. But I I think that's also another example of, you know, what this type of shift brings is that not a lot of law firms can sit there in an R and D phase. You know, and or not a lot of law firms will sit there in an RD phase and say, okay, well, what is it our client wants and, and how are we going to be able to deliver this and spend the the proper amount of time? Many lawyers that I talk to are working on the car while they're driving down the road. And that's the only way that they can and know how to do it, instead of saying, Okay, well, let's build at least a viable prototype before we start driving down the road.
3: Yeah, and, and I think that's the benefit of the partnership. So like mm-hmm. I, I would say, look. I think there's enough business for everybody to go around and more people that are trying to fill that access to justice gap, great. So I encourage law firms to kind of think about these business models. If anybody has any questions about like, you know, like specifically regarding the the application process, a little bit more detail, I'm open to to helping them with it. I think, again, one of the benefits is like, I get to focus on R&D almost Mm -hmm. exclusively. Mary and lawyers at Singular Law, uh, Marty, Scott, everybody they're focused on delivering high quality legal services and not having to like play both roles, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. just is more efficient. It's 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 a better way to build the law firm of your dreams, right? You know, like lawyer, many lawyers, they just wanted to kick butt like legal work, but then they have to troubleshoot phones. They have to like talk to the marketing agency, go through proposals, right? Like they have to like, you know figure out the internet and like setting up computers and like who wants to do that like wouldn't it just be great to like deliver like amazing legal results for your client save lives and help people essentially right mm-hmm. Like, isn't that kind of like what drove most people into law school and then they get punched in the face when they launch their own purse with all this other stuff that's just a drag so like That's one of the benefits. I mean, there's, there's other benefits like attorneys Mm -hmm. can then raise capital, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, dot coms are raising capital. Attorneys can raise capital. Now Mm -hmm. Uh, law firms could kind of go deeper in how they service clients. So like, if you're a family law firm, why not hire a couple therapists? Right. You know, like, why not? Um, Mm -hmm. If you're a a law firm dealing with uh, like, like plaintiff's law firms, they've been doing this for a while. They've got doctors on staff. Many of them, they have like Therapists, you know that they have access to. They've got their network, but like now, you can pull in a more integrated kind of community center. Think about Mm -hmm. a law firm as a hub for saving a community, right? Like that—that's pretty amazing to me. You know, like yeah. Now we have wealth planners, right? Like, what's the the best way out of poverty? Who's creating generational wealth, right? So, like, what if you're an estate planning attorney? right? And you're, you know, now you've got like financial advisors, you've got like other people where you can become more integrated into a community. I mean, like, this whole ABS model, we need to open our our minds a bit, and Mm -hmm. really get excited about the potential that law firms can now, like the positive impact that they can have on society, in a way that like, normally only the plaintiff's attorney, like the class action firms are like, I'm a hero for justice, right? You know, but like, you know what? So are family law attorneys for so estate planning attorneys, but like now you can really go deep. Anyway, I I hope I didn't take too much of your time, but I get excited about the potential here.
2: Yeah. And actually on on that positive note, I think we could keep talking about this for, for a long time. There are a lot of different manifestations of these things yeah. that neither one of us can really even think of right now. And that's the beauty of it. But uh, yeah, we, we could go forever on this, but we only have a certain amount of time. So- yeah. And Alan, always good to talk to you. I, I really appreciate all the information in this and, uh, we'll see you next time. All right.
3: You take care.
0: The lawyerist podcast is produced by Bailey Tiller and edited by Ryan Croft. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discussed here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the small firm roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com slash book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com slash community slash lab to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and not endorsed by the Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.